0: It is good to see you all here today. Uh, I'm very excited uh, as we shared in the announcements and as Nathan prayed we do have our season starter camp coming up. Uh, what's crazy is that we've got more registrations than our normal Sunday service turnout. Um, I don't know if that's something to praise God. I'm sure it is something to praise God about but um, yeah I'm excited and also Pastor Stephen Chai is a very very dear family friend of mine I've known him as long as I can remember. I'm 37 now. I've known him as early as when I was five, five years old. Uh, that's how long I've known him. He also went to the greatest high school in New South Wales, not the New I'm <laughs> um, Just kidding, but not really. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I'm very excited. Um, and in preparation for the season starter camp, um, I do encourage you to spend some time this week in prayer and fasting. Um, so that this retreat would just be more than a social outing or a social you know getaway, uh, but that it would become a spiritually precious time. Uh, we, we can draw closer to the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, just one announcement that I, I didn't add into the announcements at the beginning. Uh, I wanted to do it now because I know a few people do. Um, come to service a bit later. Um, So with next Sunday, or this coming Sunday's service, um, we are going to have a service at the retreat. Um, So our normal service is going to be at the retreat, Uh, but we we are aware that there are teachers uh, and people that serve in ministries within the Mother Church that do have to drive up uh, that morning. So we are going to have a second service that's going to be very condensed, It's not going to be here, though. It's going to be in the FLM room. Uh, If you're not sure where the FLM room is, in this car park, if you walk right down to the end and look to your right, you'll see a white house alongside the fence uh, just walk in through that door. Uh, It will be a condensed service, so it's designated just for the teachers that are serving in other ministries and anyone else that isn't able to make it uh, to the retreat or worship at the retreat. Um, If you do... If you're not able to come to the retreat, but you want to join for Sunday worship, uh, I think it's all right to just rock up to the retreat and join us for the worship. Um, but yeah, just just an FYI, a second service will be organized for the teachers in the FLM room. Um, yeah, so let's, let's pray uh, that God would be in everything that happens. Um, all right, today's passage, uh, we're coming to the end of chapter 13. In Mark's gospel and we're going to look at verses 24 to 37 Uh, verses 24 to 37 I'll give you guys a second to look that up in your Bibles or your devices and the Word of God reads but in those days after that tribulation the Sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the end, or that He, rather is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But con- concerning that hour, or that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun, but only the father be on your guard keep awake for you do not know when the time will come it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake therefore stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or whether when the rooster crows or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for Mark 13, uh, as difficult as a section in this gospel as it is. Uh, Lord, we thank you nonetheless that you give us this passage because it is a part of your word. There is power in this word. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom and clarity to understand uh, what you desire us to know of this apocalyptic prophecy and help us to understand how a passage like this, as difficult as it is, should shape the way we live today, should shape our understanding of how we should live for today and for you. And so, Lord, once again, I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth, watch over the meditations of our heart, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We do have a cafe uh, across the car park. Uh, If you ever do want to buy a coffee like this on a hot day, um, the money actually goes to a good cause as well, from my understanding. Um, But yeah, if you were to ask me um, who is my favourite preacher, uh, it's not Pastor Alvin. If you were to ask me who my favourite preacher of all time is, it wouldn't be one of the big names. Uh, It's not John Piper, it's not John MacArthur, Paul Washer, or even Billy Graham, as as great as these men are. um, It's actually one of my Old Testament lecturers from Bible College. Uh, He was an expert in a lot of things, uh, but of all things he chose to specialize in, he chose the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, so Proverbs and Psalms, and even more, he chose to specialize in Leviticus. And to give you an idea of how great a preacher he is, Uh, Leviticus is that infamous book that brings an end to so many people's New Year's resolutions to preach the Bible from cover to cover. Um, It's been the bane of every Christian that's attempted a Bible reading plan. But I remember the first time I heard him preach at seminary chapel. Uh, It was from Leviticus. And his sermon was such a clear unpackaging an exposition of Leviticus, that by the time he finished his closing prayer and the chapel ended, the students that listened to him preach went to either one of two places. They either went upstairs to the college library to get every book that they could find on Leviticus, or they drove straight to Kurong to buy every book that they could find on Leviticus. This is the one preacher I've ever heard that made people excited about reading and studying Leviticus. What made him so special was that he wasn't a guy, or he's not a guy, he's still alive, he's not a guy that relies on showmanship when it comes to preaching. Uh, You know, there's a lot of great speakers that might not necessarily be great preachers, but he had everything. He's a great speaker. Uh, He's got an Irish accent as well. I don't know, I find Irish accents easier to listen to. but he had this clear distinction that you could sense when you heard him preach, that he spoke well, but even more so, he preached really well. He had a spectacular gift of allowing his hearers, the, guy that, the people that were listening to his sermons, to see the word of God being unpackaged and to be able to experience the richness and depth of God's word, every sermon that he preaches. Uh, and so naturally, at the time, I remember the first time I heard him preach, I was like, I have to learn to preach like this guy. Like when you first start off preaching, no one knows really how to preach. You just end up like, becoming a mishmash, imitating all your favorite preachers. Every time he was rostered to preach a chapel, I would show up like 15 minutes early to get the best possible seat at the front because I wanted to get every, like, write as many notes down as I could and then go home and listen to the sermon again. And then during the lectures, every Old Testament lecture uh, lecture I sat under where he was teaching, I would prepare as many questions as I could. I wanted to just leech as much information off this guy. But I remember one piece of advice he gave to the class uh, when he was teaching a, a, a preaching subject, and it always stuck with me. He said to his students, whenever you preach from any passage, And there is a difficult verse that even like academics and scholars like debate over, can't come to a consensus over. If there is a difficult section in the passage, then you as a preacher have a duty to leave no stone unturned to prepare and deliver what God is saying through that verse. As difficult as it is, you can't skip over that verse. Additionally, he said, if you try to skip over it or skim over it, he said, the people in your congregation that are hungry to hear God's word, they're going to notice that you skipped over it, and you will lose credibility in their eyes if this is the word of God. He said that every word and every verse matters because it's God's word, and God's word, according to Romans, is the power of of God for salvation. And I remember when he said that, I was like, wow. <sighs> like, I don't really fangirl over people, but this is a lecture. I was like, wow, this, this is a guy. You know, I still listen to his sermons now. You can't skip over any verse when you preach from a passage, no matter how difficult it is. The problem though, is with sections like Mark 13 and other apocalyptic prof- uh, prophetic passages like Daniel and Revelations, um, is that it's not just one verse. Every, every verse is difficult. Uh, and whilst I am excited to preach in, you know, from Mark 13, uh, I am in a sense relieved that we're getting to the end of chapter 13 because um, it's the end of the apocalyptic prophecy. But if you recall what I shared in previous sermons from chapter 13, uh, it's probably about Wednesday. Um, Jesus entered into Jerusalem On a Sunday, he's gonna die on Friday. And today's passage in chapter 13, it's situated around Wednesday. And um, Jesus' crucifixion is about two days away. And his apostles, Jesus and his apostles, have just come out of the Jerusalem temple. And they marveled at the size and the majesty of the temple. But then Jesus told them, you know what? As big and as glorious as this temple is, it's gonna be destroyed as big as the bricks are. Remember, some of these bricks were like in excess of 600 tons, 20 meters long for one brick. He says, as big as these bricks are, there is going to come a day in the near future when not even one brick is going to be on top of another. It's going to get obliterated. And so some of the apostles came to Jesus with questions. The questions were, when is this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign? And I mentioned that the apostles were still of the understanding that Jesus was some kind of military warrior, general, uh, a military saviour, and they were expecting Jesus to bring about a physical kingdom rather than a spiritual one. And so they asked this question, when is it going to happen and what's going to be the sign? Because we want to be ready. We want to anticipate when we can become the leader's of the new free world that you're going to establish. We wanna know when we're gonna be the leaders at your left and right hand. And so the first half of chapter 13 was Jesus responding with an answer that they weren't expecting. In a nutshell, Jesus said, you wanna know when? You wanna know what the signs are? Here it is. You'll know when because you'll suffer like no human being has ever suffered. You want to know what the sign is? The sign will be when the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, appears in my house, pretending to be a peacemaker. And then the sign is going to be that he's going to slaughter as many of you as possible. How's that for a sign? You're waiting for honor, power, riches, and status? Congratulations, you're all going to die. But as I explained, like, you know, that that wasn't the, the big idea that Jesus was pr- trying to present. Uh, and that's the strange thing about apocalyptic prophecy, isn't it? Because when you read through apocalyptic prophecy, so much of it sounds terrifying. Uh, I remember when my sister, well, I've got an older sister, she read Revelations for the first time when we were a kid. She was terrified. She was terrified of Jesus. She was like, this, he's going to pull a sword out of his mouth who what what the heck this isn't what this isn't what like the jesus that i i learned growing up but the reality is that apocalyptic prophecy was written and taught believe it or not to bring comfort and hope in the midst of coming crisis to god's people because it reminds people that in spite of all of this God is still in charge that was the big idea that I kept reiterating the last few weeks. God is still in charge. Now, Jesus mentioned that there's going to be a period of tribulation, like hardship and horror on a scale never seen before in human history. Today's passage begins after that description. After that period of tribulation, Jesus says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken so god's people will be in a world being ruled by the antichrist whether it's a man or an institution he or it will be slaughtering people in the church but there's going to come a time at the end when jesus promises the sun will be darkened now that's easy to imagine hard to kind of play out in reality. Like, it's, how crazy hot is it today? How piercing is the sun's heat today? Gone. Um, and Jesus says the sun is going to be darkened, and because the sun's going to be pitch black, the moon's going to have no light to reflect. And so the moon's going to be plunged, plunged into physical darkness. And not only that, stars or comets are going to fall from heaven. And then Jesus says, when this happens, the powers in heaven... Will be shaken. What does that mean? What does it mean that the powers of heaven will be shaken? Does that mean that God's going to be on the throne, experiencing an earthquake? Like what's going on? Not really. Um, it goes back to like to understand this. It goes back to understanding Jewish literary context. Like I gave. You know, brief examples of like revelations, the seven horns and seven eyes representing complete power, complete wisdom. Um, but we need to understand symbolism to understand what this means. Because when we think of heaven, whose home do we think of? God. When we think of heaven, we think of paradise with God at the center, sitting on the throne. But the heaven that Jesus is referring to here is not that heaven. It's not a spiritual heaven but rather the physical heaven, as in the sky. And in Jewish culture, when it came to understanding the earth and the physical sky, there was an understanding that this was Satan's stomping ground. Because the earth and the physical sky are part of creation. This is Satan's realm. So much so that people believed that when you look up at the sky, people thought this sky is what separates us from God. The sky and the earth, this is Satan's stomping ground, this is his jurisdiction. Hence, why if you read through Ephesians, like he opens chapter 2 of Ephesians by saying, you know what, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, or heaven, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so going back to what Jesus is saying, the words of Christ about the end, it's not to scare and bring terror to generations of Christians that would follow, but to give us strength and hope in the midst of crisis and tribulation. Because this world, the heaven and the earth, the sky and the ground, it might look and feel like Satan's stomping ground. It might feel like everything is controlled by Satan, especially as persecution against the the church starts to ramp up. But the reason this passage is given and other apocalyptic prophecies are given is to give us hope and to remind us, no matter what it feels like, even if it feels like this is Satan's stomping ground, that we know who is truly in control and the proof is that the world is going to be plunged into physical darkness not because of satan but because of christ the author of hebrews recognizes that's why he wrote like whoever wrote hebrews wrote in chapter 1 verse 3 that he is the radiance of the glory of god the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the power of his word jesus does not Satan despite all the suffering and tribulation, even if the darkest times in human history come upon the church, even if it feels like Satan has won the day, this passage and other prophecies like this remind us of the underlying reality that the one who is truly in charge, who has always been in charge, and who will always be in charge, is the Christ. That's why, in the end, Jesus says, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Not his heaven, but Satan's heaven. And the one who is truly in charge will be revealed, because verses 26 and 27 says, and then, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth. To the ends of heaven what is this title the son of man it doesn't appear that many times in scripture but it's been a title of great contention the muslims like to look at this title and say "Aha, uh-huh, jesus is just a son of man not the son of god he's the son of man um, is he in a sense yes because he's a descendant of david but the son of man is actually a title that Jesus deliberately attributes to himself, it's a title first spoken in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Because Daniel, when he refers to the Son of Man, he refers to that title in a section of that book when he prophesies about what's going to happen in the future and at the end. In Daniel chapter 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting or an eternal dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So going back to that original question or questions that were put forward by the Apostles, When is this gonna happen? And what will be the sign? Jesus finally gives a direct answer. What will be the sign? I will be the sign. When you see me, that's the sign. As tribulation arises, it might seem like Satan has won the day, but I, not Satan, I am going to plunge the earth in complete darkness. And what God has promised from the old testament will finally be fulfilled it's going to be pitch darkness and then against the context and the backdrop of pitch darkness you will see the piercing light of my glory as the son of man descends from the heavens and when you see that then you're going to know who's truly in charge satan thinks this is his stomping ground you're going to see the reality of whose authority has been supreme this whole time, despite what Satan might have thought or told you. When I read that, it kind of have you ever, ever seen um, Undercover Boss? It's like that CEO that pretends to be an employee and then the manager starts yelling at him and treating him really badly and then he's like, aha, I'm the CEO. That's kind of what it reminds me of. Now Jesus continues in verses 28 to 31 by saying, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the end, or that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, this part of Mark's gospel, when I say that You know, chapter 13 has a difficult... Well, I said everything was difficult. This is probably the most difficult section of Mark 13 because it's been the subject of a lot of debate, particularly verse 30. Why? Because Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Why is it difficult? Because Jesus says, this generation will not pass away. 2,000 years later, many generations have passed away, and yet not all of these things have taken place. As far as I know, the second coming hasn't occurred yet. Um, And the way I... Like, the reason this is a problem is because Jesus is giving a prophecy, and the proof of a false prophet according to Scripture is false prophecy. Uh, But the way I exegete this is the language used by Jesus particularly in the pronoun you. This you that Jesus uses isn't a reference to the apostles, even though he's talking to them. But this you has a wider reference. It's talking about the church in general, God's people. And the reason I believe this is because apocalyptic prophecy in general is not usually given to the immediate audience that's listening or reading that prophecy. Remember in the Bible, this prophecy about the Son of Man that I mentioned, it was given to who? Daniel. The prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, almost 600 years before Christ, Jesus did not come The incarnation didn't occur in Daniel's lifetime. And so for me, verse 30 doesn't actually raise too many concerns when Jesus says, this generation, because he's not talking about the immediate apostles that are sitting before him. But remember what I mentioned a fortnight ago. The purpose of apocalyptic prophecy, its its designated audience, if it is for the church, we can be comforted because we also know that the purpose of apocalyptic prophecy isn't to know the specific date, time or hour. It's not. I know a lot of church leaders throughout the years have tried to pinpoint it to a specific time, a specific second. But Jesus says in verse 32, "But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. The purpose of the Olivet Discourse it's a timeless teaching to give to God's people throughout the generations, not just the apostles. And it's to give them strength and hope in the darkest hours that are to come and to constantly remind us of who is in charge in the times to come. But one more thing it does is that it reminds us that we have to be ready. Jesus mentioned throughout chapter 13, multiple times, be ready. And he gave like variations of this. Be ready, be on the guard, be on the lookout. Verse 33 to 37, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work and commands the doorkeepers to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Again, reiterating that it's not just for the apostles, but for all generations. He concludes, stay awake. Now, one final question that needs to be answered. There were a lot of difficult things I didn't want to gloss over. One difficult thing that needs to be asked, we didn't avoid verse 30, when Jesus referred to this generation will not pass away. Uh, another verse we can't ignore is verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's a problem, isn't it? If Jesus is the Son of God, he is God incarnate in his essence, God in every sense. If he is God and this mission that he's on and the will for mankind, everything about the end, if this is all a part of his his divine plan, how could he not know? How does he not know the hour? He's God, isn't he? That's a legitimate question we well, have to ask, and we can't shy away from. And in my opinion, um, Pastor Eddie gave the answer at the beginning of last year uh, when he began this series on Mark. Uh, I love that Pastor. I always say this: his sermons are on our YouTube channel. Go back and have a listen. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a goldmine. I, I love listening to Pastor Eddie's sermons. Um, but specifically. He covered it in a sermon called The Ultimate Baptism. Some of you might remember. I think it was the second sermon. He preached it on the 23rd of October, 2022. I'll say it wasn't last year, it was a year before. Um, and the live stream goes for about an hour and 11 minutes. Uh, I, 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 I'm not just saying I literally listened to all the past 80 sermons. Um, and he covers, he gives the answer 43 minutes and 10 seconds into the clip. And. I'll paraphrase what he said. Pastor Eddie preached, and this is like I I kind of reworded it, but he says, and I'm not going to do the American accent, I can't do it, but he says, Jesus Christ did not perform any of those miracles as God. Jesus Christ performed those miracles as a human being anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to anoint Jesus Christ's humanity. Not his divinity. Jesus performed all of his miracles. He fulfilled all of his mission as a human being. That's where we find the answer in doctrine. That's why we entitled this camp Anchored. Because this, hum- this humanness, this manness about God or Christ, it's not just exclusive to the miracles. It's not just that he performed his miracles as just a man anointed by the Holy Spirit, but it also goes and applies to his divine plan. What Jesus is sharing, this apocalyptic prophecy that Jesus is sharing with his disciples today, he's sharing it as God the man. Not as Jesus divine, but as Jesus the man, and he's sharing it as a man under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul writes in Philippians 2, when he speaks of Jesus, he says, though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he did what? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So the 33-year life of Jesus, what he did, what he performed... Wasn't as Jesus the God, but as Jesus the man anointed by the Holy Spirit. And in today's passage, Jesus as a man in his humanity, in his manness, I don't know, is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. In his manness, in his humanity, he doesn't know the time and the hour. But after his death and resurrection and ascension, as the Apostle, Apostles' Creed says, he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From this he shall come to judge the living and the dead. At that point, he reassumes his full rights as God. After the resurrection, Jesus knows the time and the hour. But in today's passage, in his humanity, he does not. That's why he says the son doesn't know, but the father knows. And then that's how today's passage ends. We made it. <laughs> and so there's only one observation or application uh, I want us to take away from today's passage as you meditate on this passage, chapter 13, throughout this week. I, I hope you do, because it's an important... It's a difficult passage, but it's an important one. And the one takeaway, uh, and kind of like with the apostles, it- it's a reminder to us, and it's that we should be living every day in anticipation of his return. Every day we should be living in anticipation of his return. There aren't many guarantees in this this life. Um, the Bible, and I'm sure if you've gone, lived, just looked at your own life and watched your family members around you, uh, you'll know that there's not really many guarantees in life. But there are Two. One of them is that death is coming. Everyone's gonna die. You can try your best to prolong your life, but we're all gonna die at some point, physically. The second is that Christ will return. Two guarantees, promises that we can take to the bank. And in my personal opinion, we should do well to live in anticipation of both, more the latter rather than the former. But I say this because so often humanity and Christians in general, including myself, I have to remind myself, so often we live, up, or live our lives from day to day being caught up, becoming so busy that we have a tendency not to live in anticipation of what's to come. No anticipation that the King of Kings is going to return. So much so that we have a tendency to kind of think, in the, even if it's not intentional, we think the King of Kings isn't going to come in our lifetime. Do you guys? Even if it's not intentional. I'm sure you guys sometimes think like that. I do. When things get busy, the second coming of Christ isn't even in my peripheral. Because we tend to think that the end is so, even death, we think death is just so far away that it doesn't matter to us. But as I mentioned last week, the end should shape the way we live today. Because as I said last week, the original listeners of this sermon in chapter 13 were a group of apostles 2,000 years ago. The original recipients of the book of Revelations were the seven churches in Asia 2,000 years ago. The apocalyptic prophecy in the book of Daniel. Daniel received that prophecy approximately 2,600 years ago. And clearly what God had to say to them at that time was important to them. But to us who are even closer to the second coming of Christ how much more important should it be to us? And Jesus warns us repeatedly throughout the Olivet Discourse in chapter thirteen. He riddles it with warnings. Verse five: See that no one leads you astray. And that "see" in the Greek it, it's an, like it's a, it's implying be careful or be ready, be vigilant when it comes to suffering. In verse nine, Jesus says. Be on your guard. Verse 23, when it comes to fake messiahs, Jesus reiterates, be on your guard. Have a discerning mind and a heart. Verse 33, about the return of Jesus, he says to the apostles and to generations to come, be on your guard. Keep awake. Verse 35, keep awake or stay awake. Verse thirty-seven, and what I say to you, apostles, I say to all the whole church and generations to come: Stay awake. The purpose of the Olivet discourse isn't to scare us or to strike terror into the hearts of God's people about the end, but rather, as that day comes, it reminds us reminds us that Satan is going to do everything he can to strike terror into the hearts of God's people. But today's passage reminds us that we don't have a reason to be scared. The Olivet Discourse was given to give us strength, hope, and to equip us to be ready, to be awake for the end. And so we have a duty to heed the words of Christ, understanding that the end, what's coming, is meant to shape the way we live today as we live being reminded that the end is not far off. It's not that the end isn't necessarily far away and doesn't matter to us, but the Olivet Discourse is given to remind us that we need to be living in preparation, staying awake, being on our guard, being vigilant of everything that's gonna happen that leads to the return of Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, it, it does often feel like these passages are glossed over, not studied enough, not examined and meditated upon enough to understand its relevance to how we should live today. But Lord, we pray for a renewal of our hearts and our minds through the Holy Spirit, have clarity when we study passages like this to understand that it is absolutely relevant that Christ gave it not just to the apostles but for all generations of the church that we are to be a people living in anticipation knowing that tribulation will come on a scale never seen before but that we don't have to live in fear but passages like this that we can experience the power of your word as it gives us strength and hope in times of tribulation. And so, Lord, we pray to be a people that live from day to day, being shaped by an anticipation of what is to come, not living in fear but in expectation, knowing that this is not Satan's stomping ground, But that Christ, our Lord, has supreme authority. That Satan can only do what Christ allows. And what Christ has allowed is a final victory. A glorious end for those that have their trust and their faith in him. So Lord, we do anticipate your return. And we pray that you would keep us in Christ strengthened and renewed from day to day as we rejoice at the return of our King. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.